0: podcast for the D.C. Art Science Evening Rendezvous, or DAZER, a series of monthly evening salons exploring the intersections of art, science, and culture. DAZER is organized by cultural programs of the National Academy of Sciences in Washington, D.C., and Leonardo, the International Society for the Arts, Sciences, and Technology. I'm your host, J.D. Tolosik. Each month we bring artists, scientists, and other creative people together with a live audience in Washington, D.C. to explore the ways in which different perspectives can influence creativity and innovation. During our previous DAZER held on March 16, 2011, a panel of artists and scientists talked about the ways in which their collaborations across discipline led into and fed the idea of community. This month, our April 21st Acer led to conversations about ways in which science and art have historically existed side by side, and what actions we might take to break down constructive barriers that exist, allowing for more cross-disciplinary interaction. Each panelist began with a 10-minute introduction to their work, and then we moved to a discussion about how the arts and sciences complement each other, both in the past and the present. Amy Bastian is the director of the Motion Analysis Laboratory at the Kennedy Krieger Institute An Associate Professor of Neurology at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. She studies how damage to the brain affects human movement and strives to understand how the brain controls movement, how we learn new movements, and ultimately to optimize rehabilitation for patients who have incurred brain injuries. In her lab, she videotapes patients walking on a special treadmill. Rather than having one belt to walk on, this treadmill has two, one under each foot. Amy can make these belts go at different speeds and see how the asymmetry affects the walker. What she's found is that we easily adapt to conditions, but then need to readapt when conditions change.
1: When you walk, again, it's a very automatic movement, and and you don't usually think a lot about it, but you're constantly learning and calibrating your walking pattern. And so we've created this experiment where we teach people how to walk in a new way using our split belt treadmill and so in this experiment what we do is we have people walk with the treadmill moving at the same speed so both belts are tied what that means is it's just like a regular treadmill and then we split the belts and what that means is I make one belt go faster than the other and in this case I'm going to make one belt go three times faster than the other belt and we look to see what you do when that asymmetric environment is given to you and what happens is you learn a new walking pattern and the fascinating thing is you have to actively unlearn it so you have to wash it out once you go back to a regular situation. This is an example of how we behaviorally study what happens when you learn a new pattern. We've done a lot of work and we know that people with damage to this part of the brain, the cerebrum, can learn this walking pattern. But if we go lower in the brain to the cerebellum, we know that people cannot learn this new walking pattern and the reason that's useful is it lets us know what needs to be intact in order to use this kind of technology to help rehabilitate people.
0: While Amy studies ways in which our brain activity manifests itself as movement, Max Kazimzada creates artworks that investigate our different levels of consciousness. Max is assistant professor of art and media technology at the Washburn Art Center at Gallaudet University. He almost became a biologist but found himself more drawn to art and the effect art processes have on our consciousness.
2: I'm beginning to like the metaphor that art practice could be seen as a process or mechanism to silence thought. As Jiddu Krishna, Krishnamurti and David Boehm discuss, serves as the prerequisite for an accessing and channeling consciousness. Originating in the Vedas and found today in the Ayurvedic medicine, pure consciousness is seen as an abstract, silent, completely unified field of consciousness with an architecture of increasingly abstract, functionally integrated faculties or levels of mind. The process of identifying meaningful patterns in a sea of noise, there are many different theories that investigate what it is to be conscious. However, consciousness still seems to evade definition and limitation. Playing along with the ideas of a prominent Western physicist and an Eastern philosopher, one might infer that if silence is a lens for consciousness, then creative action might serve as a thought muffler and focusing on materiality, a channel for silencing the mind. Art, as any form of expression, fundamentally concerns itself with the realization or embodiment of thoughts, glimmers of consciousness through a medium existing in space-time. Art has predominantly been an interactive interface in that it relies on human perception to complete that experience. Art has predominantly been virtual since artwork always seems to represent a thought or consciousness glimmer as primary when compared to its actual physical utilitarian counterpart.
0: Sometimes the connection between art and science becomes part of our consciousness through the environment in which we're experiencing one or the other. Joanna Marsh is the James Dickey Curator of Contemporary Art at the Smithsonian American Art Museum. The building that houses the museum was the original US Patent Office, an appropriate location to represent the intersection of science and creativity.
3: The museum offers a really unique context for uh, the intersection of visual art, science, and technical invention, and that is in large part because of the museum's historic building. The building was originally designed as the U.S. Patent Office and for uh, more than 150 years was home to both technical invention but also artistic creativity. And so today, the American Art Museum is continuing that tradition of cross-disciplinary conversation through a variety of different exhibitions and public programs. I thought I'd just give a little bit of brief background for those of you who don't know the history of the building. The construction of the building was authorized in July 4, 1836, by President Andrew Jackson, and built. commenced um, quickly thereafter. It was designed expressly to celebrate American invention, technical ingenuity, and scientific advancement, and was home from the early 18 or mid-1800s till about 1932 to the U.S. patent offices. And the building became known as a a kind of temple for invention. Um, The Uh, Patent models were displayed in cases on the third floor, along with historical documents and painting collections as well. So this history of collaboration between the sciences and the arts is embedded in the history of the Patent Office building, and I think one of the reasons why it was really interesting to think about an exhibition featuring a contemporary artist whose work is all about that sort of merge or synthesis of art and science.
0: Within the Smithsonian Institution, Jane Melosh has helped develop a fellowship program that brings artists together with a variety of experts, including scientists. Jane directs the Smithsonian Provenance Research Initiative and is former curator at the Renwick Gallery at the Smithsonian. She was instrumental in developing the Smithsonian Artist Research Fellowship Program, that brings artists in for two to three months to work with scientists, curators, and other experts within the Smithsonian complex. She described the work of one of the fellows and how, by witnessing his process, scientists began to understand how artists work.
4: This is Shijie Huang, a 2007 SAR fellow who is from uh, Taiwan originally and lives in New York. His topic was understanding how organisms use bioluminescence and the evolutionary story behind its development. So during his two-month residency, he primarily worked with Lynn Parenti, who is our Curator of Fishes at Natural History, and I wanted to read a quote um, about her experience of encountering C.J. She says, C.J. is simply one of the most creative people I have ever met. His investigation of the creation of light by living things knew no bounds. He manipulated fixed specimens to see just where their light organs were and how they worked as readily as he reconfigured commercial light sensors. He crossed the boundary between science and art by denying its existence. I feel privileged to have met Mr. Huang and have experienced his art.
0: In the discussion that followed, our panelists explored how science and art are intertwined. How a person can't really practice one without practicing the other, at least on some level. Jane pointed out that any artist needs to understand the science behind their chosen media. Amy noted that her students need to draw on their sense of aesthetic and expression to understand their data.
1: One of the things in my lab that I have my students often do is when we're studying movement, we ultimately are dissecting it. We are sort of taking a lens to it and trying to figure out what the core differences are. But what's so important is to have a gestalt feel for what looks normal for example, what looks beautiful, what looks coordinated, what looks uncoordinated and so we're not artists but we're appreciators of how things appear and before we dissect we always try to get a a flavor for what things are and how a movement may uh, unfold in a way that we expected or didn't expect it to. So We use a lot of technology and we use a lot of reductionist Approaches We put people in artificial situations, but we also draw very heavily from our powers of observation and understanding what movement means, how people convey emotion through movement, and ultimately, you know, how people communicate through movement.
0: In almost all areas of human endeavor, we find examples where the disciplines of art and science co-mingle at some level. For Joanna, publicly acknowledging that crossover helps more non-artists find meaning in artwork.
3: The interdisciplinary approach provides a point of access, a greater level of accessibility to the content that's presented in the art museum. And if I can allow our visitors to find something that they can relate to in a work of art. You know, that may be through science, that may be through patent models or invention. For me, it's about finding that conduit or avenue by which the the visitor can access and begin to understand the work of art and how it relates to their life, our society, history in general. So that's for me what's so stimulating about interdisciplinary
2: approaches.
0: And Max notes that cross-disciplinary approaches to one's own work can be helpful by providing a different perspective to solving a problem.
2: When we look as artists or when we look as scientists, I mean, but it's really, um, which lens are you looking through? And I think that within each discipline, there comes a point at which you're stuck. You you come to a point where you just, you know, and and it may be a temporary, you know frozen state or whatever but uh, even in in the art practice what I've seen is that there there are moments where there's certain things that are very difficult to explain and to to clarify mentally and these mental models I think that there are many disciplines that might have solutions for that and so it's interesting uh, the dialogue I mean ultimately you know why one would want to work with other disciplines is this notion of looking at the object from different perspectives and different angles but really what happens is from different lenses you have different layers of complex systems so from the human humanistic level or cultural level you have a, a layer of complexity right that I think many many artists look at but from you know theoretical physics or quantum physics or nanobiology or nanosciences and uh, chemistry, mathematics, there's completely different perspectives that emerge just from, from simple dialogue.
0: Contemporary attitudes towards research and knowledge production have created a sort of artificial divide between these perspectives. Jane points out that in the past, artisans worked alongside scientists and that such an exchange was more commonplace.
4: It's harder to see it today in what we consider to be civilized society, but in fact, in much more quote-unquote primitive society, you see the intersection of art and science, beauty, destruction, um, every day, and it's a part of that everyday experience, so it's not such a foreign thing.
0: And this prompted a short discussion between Amy, Jane, and Joanna that ended the evening on a note that was both historical and futuristic about the contributions that artists can make to scientific pursuit
1: what makes us human what we like what makes our brains wired the way they are has to do with these basic tenets these basic concepts and so i mean art is really important for us to understand why we are who we are and that's brain science so cuz we we kind of are our brains so i think that it is very uh, very
4: interdependent. I, I forgot to mention uh, that was the conclusion that uh, the national collection, the Smithsonian, initially didn't segregate art from science. It was this this integrated collection, and the Wunder, Wunderkammer put, you know, natural artifacts next to artwork. I mean, that's how you innovated. I mean, you look at the shell, or you. We're the ones that have begun to take things apart.
3: Yeah, I think that's a great way to end. I mean that that maybe we need to look back um historically at these, you know, 16th century models where art and science were completely intertwined and that it was only after that, you know, slowly this sort of bifurcation occurred you know separating the arts and the sciences and we've reached this incredibly siloed moment where the disciplines are completely separate but i think this sort of entrenched attitudes on the part of scientists is not uncommon or unusual and it's something that we're really trying to break down through this Smithsonian Artist Research Project. And again, it's sort of little by little chipping away at, at this attitude that artists can't or you know won't be able to contribute to scientific discourse.
0: Thanks for joining us for this podcast, sponsored by Cultural Programs of the National Academy of Sciences. DAZER is a monthly community-centered salon in Washington, D.C., organized by the cultural programs of the National Academy of Sciences and by Leonardo, the International Society for the Arts, Sciences, and Technology. For more information on DAZER programs and other events and exhibitions at the Academy, visit us on the web at www.cpnas.org. I'm J.D. Tolosic.